Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. Right now we are in a series through the book of Colossians. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the word. This fall we have been in a series where we've been going verse by verse, section by section through the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Now Colossians is basically, we call it a book of the Bible, but it is really um, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to this group of people that were believers in the city of Colossae. Uh, which was a mostly Gentile area, and uh, they were kind of like first-generation believers. They didn't really have a background um, in faith. They didn't really have a background in worshiping God, much like, uh, much like it had been done until Jesus came. And so they were really just kind of learning everything for the very first time. And also they had kind of come out of the pagan practices of worshiping like um, the, the Greek and the Roman gods, like Zeus and Aphrodite and all of them, which worshiping a pantheon of gods is much different than when you worship the one true God. It's a much different. And so in Colossae, there was a little bit of a, there was a little bit of a tension that went in what is pure worship to Jesus Christ compared to what we've known before. And so Paul writes the letter. Um, Paul writes the letter that we've been looking at in the book of Colossians for the past, uh, for the past month or so now. He writes the letter on this one subject, this one word, which is basically it's called preeminence. And it means that Jesus is above all, that he is in all, and that he is worth all. That there is no one, there is no thing that comes beside or rivals Jesus. And that there is nothing that is more important than the pursuit of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we're created. We're created to glorify our creator God. So today we're taking a break from that message, and I invite you to come back next week as we'll be looking at uh, how God's preeminence and how Jesus' preeminence relates to how we do things at home, how our home is structured, and how we do things at work, how we relate to our employers, how we relate to if you have employees, how you relate to your husband, how you relate to your wife, um, all of those things. So we'll be looking at that practical application of Christ's preeminence. But today, Christ's preeminence flows into this very basic message that I wanted to to look at this morning, and that is that there is salvation in no one other than Jesus Christ. That we can look at a lot of different places, we can look at a lot of different things, and there's a lot of saviors, and I use that with air quotes there, Uh, there are a lot of saviors out there that people look to, but they're all broken saviors. They all fall short of the ability to truly save us and to keep us saved. So Christ's preeminence permeates every subject of Scripture. And Christ's preeminence should permeate every aspect and every attribute of our lives as well. Because every issue that we will encounter in our lives, Christ touches it. If you will allow him and if you will place Jesus as king in your life, Christ will touch every aspect, every part, every avenue of your life. Here our mission statement basically is incorporated by three things that we seek to do. We exist to do three things here at this church and number one is that we exist to worship Jesus Christ as the only true God and worship him in spirit and in truth. We also exist after we worship him we exist to grow in him. To grow in his nature, to grow in knowledge of his word and eventually to grow into uh, that image that he's trying to create us to be. And then we also exist to serve. We want to serve in the grace and with the love of Jesus Christ and in his name and in his name alone. See, our goal is that Jesus would be the center of everything. 
That Jesus would be the reason that we exist, that Jesus would be worshipped and he would be lifted high because Christ is the only one who gives our life true purpose and gives our life true meaning. When Jesus enters your life, he gives real life to life. I don't know how better to say that, but Jesus gives life to life. Um, Most everybody in here, most everybody probably listening and stuff, you're probably familiar with the name Kanye West, right? You heard the name Kanye West? Okay. Kanye's been making the headlines again. Uh, he's made the headlines for a lot of years. Kanye's a hip-hop artist, and he's released many, many albums and stuff. But just recently, Kanye has made a recommitment to Jesus Christ. He says that he has a Christian background, and he has Christian roots, but he's made a commitment to Christ. He's recommitted his life. And he's been holding a lot of interviews. He's been holding, like, pop-up worship services all around. Just a couple of weeks ago, his newest album entitled Jesus is King debuted at number one on, on all the charts that you can find. Here's a couple of things that Kanye has said when he, was, uh, when he was interviewed just a few weeks ago about his new album coming out. He said this. He said, my job is to spread the gospel and to let people know what Jesus has done for me. That's pretty much the Great Commission, isn't it? And he said this. He says, in my life and in my career, I've spread a lot of things. There was a time in my life when I was letting you know what high fashion had done for me. There was a time in my life when I was letting you know what the Hennessy had done for me. There was a time in my life that I was letting you know about all of these things and what they had done for me. But now, now I've come to a point in my life where I'm letting you know what Jesus has done for me. And in that, in Jesus, I'm no longer a slave. In Jesus, I am a son. In Jesus, I have been made free. In Jesus, I no longer serve all of those things, for I serve the King of Kings. And that's where he got the title of the album. A couple of weeks ago as well, he was interviewed by, on, on Jimmy Kimmel Live. And uh, Jimmy asked him, he says, hey, Kanye, he said, so do you consider yourself to be a Christian artist now? And Kanye stopped for a moment and he looked down like he was just praying about what he could say. And he just looks up and he gets this knowing smile on his face. He says, I guess you could just say I'm a Christian everything. That's the idea of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that when Jesus is real in our lives, he permeates everything. He's not just over here in one section of my life where I just give him my Sundays from like 10 to 12, um, and, uh, or I just give him maybe my Wednesdays, or I give him little aspects of my life. But no, when Jesus is king and when Jesus is Lord of your life, when he's preeminent, he dis- defines you and he defines everything. We lose our identity in Jesus Christ. And that is a beautiful life. That's a beautiful existence. Here's a guy who's basically kind of had his hands on everything that life could offer. And he said, you know what? I've tasted it. I've had it. I've experienced it. And it all fell short. The only place I find fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. The only place I find out what life is really about is through a relationship with Christ. So for the next few minutes, I want to look at just a couple of things One passage in the Old Testament, another passage in the New Testament, and talk about just how important Christ is. Because he's important here at Graceway, how seemingly he has been important enough to change the life of someone like Kanye West. Because the same thing that Kanye is saying and has been saying, it might be the same thing you've heard from a friend or a family. It might be the same thing that you at one time have said, but maybe you've grown silent in that. Is that Jesus has changed my life. Jesus has changed everything that Jesus has become the fulfillment of the meaning of my life because 
let's be honest, life is full of a lot of questions and mysteries, right? There's a lot of questions to life. There's a lot of hard questions to wrestle with. If you thought that once you graduated and got your diploma or your degree, you didn't have to wrestle with hard questions and equations anymore, you realize when you start living real life, that's when the stuff really begins to hit the fan, isn't it? That's when it really begins to, to, to hit the road, and that's when things get, get scary, right? Questions like, what am I going to do now that I've gotten the diagnosis that I've gotten? What am I going to do now that my child has turned their back on me and doesn't want to speak with me anymore? How are we going to make ends meet now that my job is on the chopping block? Chopping block? Where is God in all of the tragedy that I see? Those are full of mysteries and questions, and very few things in life seem to make sense. But in Christ, everything begins to come into focus. It doesn't change the fact that those hardships are there, but when you're with Christ and when you draw close to him, there's a peace that passes all understanding. And that you may not have all of the answers, but you are owned and you are, you are, in, you are fulfilled by the one who not only has the answer, but is the answer. But that's the title of the message this morning. I want you to consider for a minute that Jesus is the answer to all of your questions. Jesus is the answer to life's mysteries. Jesus is the answer to the emptiness that we are prone to feel in life when life lets us down. That once we've tried everything else, once we've turned everything everywhere else and it lets us down, Jesus never will because he is the universal answer. Because he is preeminent, he touches everything. And so this morning I want to look at the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Now, just a little bit of a background to Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet. The prophet was somebody that God hand-selected and gave them literally his words to preach to God's people, the nation of Israel. Because they didn't have the full Bible that they could go over to a bookstore or download on their phones. They didn't have the full completed Bible yet. The New Testament didn't even exist at that point. The New Testament hadn't even happened. A lot of the Old Testament hadn't even happened. And so when a prophet stood up, they were known to be speaking the very words of God. Here's how we know we're speaking the very words of God today in the New Testament age. Prophets maybe don't exist to that standard today because we have the full revelation of God before us. But when we look in this word, it's just as the prophet used to stand and say, thus saith the Lord, the very words of God, the very meaning of life. And so in chapter 45, we see Isaiah lay out this legal argument for the fact that God is the only one who can be trusted. That you can try anything and everything. And, and, and the children of Israel at this point in history had basically turned their back on God a few generations back. And they had started to kind of delve into worshiping some of the other false idols and the false gods, the other philosophies that were around. And basically everything had come crumbling down at this point. And so when we pick up in verse number 20, uh, the nation of Israel is standing there in a heap of ashes generations of turning from God and rebelling against God had finally caught up with them, and they did not know where they were going to turn. Enter God's man, Isaiah, with God's word, and here's what he says in verse, uh, in verse number 20. He says this. He says, assemble yourselves and come, and I love God's language here. God, infinite in majesty and glory and sovereignty and authority, he says, assemble yourselves together, and he says, come near. With the heart of a father, he says, gather near, you brokenhearted. Gather near, you rebels who have just finally come to the understanding that there is no hope outside of me. And he says, you that are the escaped of the nations, they have no knowledge. Those have no knowledge, the ones who set up the wood of their graven images and pray to a God that cannot save. 
Tell your story. That's what he means by tell ye. And he says, tell your story and bring all of them near. Let them take counsel together. Who has declared all of the truth? Who has declared this or the truth from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord, told it? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is no one beside me. And then I love in verse number 22. Let's read this one together. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no one else. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak clearly from your word. Father, I pray that as your messenger, I would not stand in the way of your message. And I pray this morning that our hearts and our minds and our souls would be in tune to your truth today. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Call upon me or look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth because there is no other God. We're going to look at five simple truths this morning right from this passage. Because as you look at the first couple verses, they can be a little bit, uh, little bit difficult to understand and maybe even apply to where we are today. But we draw five truths that we have to understand out of this passage. Because I consider this, even though Jesus had not yet come onto the scene, the gospel is presented here loud and clear. Loud and clear, already pointing to the plan of salvation, where salvation can be found. And the first thing that we see and that we have to grasp and understand as we wrestle with this passage is this, is that only God can save us. Only God can save us. If you look again at that last part of verse number 20, he says, Those people have no knowledge, those who set up the wood of their graven images and pray to a God that cannot save. What God is saying there is, there are many people who do not know the truth. There are people who are out there trying to go after, uh, go after anything and everything that they can hold on for a little bit of security. Because especially in a culture where we are born and we are taught, there is no God, there is no one higher than us, there is no eternity. And that's kind of where we've been, we've been kind of trending in America too for, uh, for a few decades, uh, really. We're kind of in that, what you're left with is, when you're not taught that there's a creator and, that, and when you're taught that basically we just kind of, we just popped up out of some primordial ooze, we're left feeling very alone in the world. That we're just here because we're some big cosmic accident. But when you change things and understand, and what you, when you change things and understand that you have a creator, then you have a purpose. When you have a designer, there is a purpose for why you're here and the design that you have. But many of these folks, they were kind of left on their own with no knowledge of God. So what did they do? They wanted to think that there was something bigger than themselves out there. So what did they do? They did what they knew. They fashioned something that would represent their idea of their salvation, of what would save them. These are what the Bible calls those graven images. Now, I understand, and you probably understand, that most of us don't have wooden statues in our houses today. You probably don't have an altar that is set up to Zeus or to Baal or to Thor. Uh, not the Avengers Thor, but the, like the God, you know, the little G God Thor from history. We don't have those things probably set up in our home, but we still do have our little G gods in our lives, don't we? They may not be graven images today, but they still take on that same substance in our lives. We'll do anything and everything. We'll sacrifice everything for the almighty dollar. We'll arrange our schedules, we'll arrange our lives, we'll sacrifice time with our families, we'll sacrifice sometimes our integrity if there's more money to grab at stake. We have a tendency to let too much of our happiness and our security in life ride on the next big promotion 
or the next big career move that we could have coming down the way. Maybe it's the never-ending string of relationships, one after the other, convinced that my soulmate is out there. One day my prince, one day my princess will come, and then life will make sense, just like it does in all those Disney movies. Life's not a Disney movie. That's why it's in the fantasy section. Because fulfillment doesn't come in a relationship with another broken person. Fulfillment, true fulfillment, comes in a relationship with the Lord God Almighty through his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're looking to your government or to a politician. I mean, we just came off an election cycle, right? Maybe you're looking to your government or a politician and saying, hey, they're going to be the next great answer to our country's peace and our country's righteousness. But folks... Peace cannot, be, peace cannot be guaranteed in a ballot box. True peace comes from Jesus. See, we may not have the graven images today, but all the idols are still around us. And hope in those things is just as pointless as hope that we look back to the ancients and say, hoping in a, a God named Zeus is just not, just not going to cut it either. You see, because only God can save us. God says here, he says, hey, You've tried all of your idols. You've tried all of your statues. You've tried all of your ways, and where has it gotten you? You're standing on this broken heap and rubble of your life. All these expectations that you had, it didn't meet your expectation. Guess who's still standing? Here I am. I'm the Lord your God. I'm the creator, and I am here. And I've just beckoned you in like the Father I am to draw near and hear me tell you where your hope lies. The second thing we see is that God is the author of salvation. He said, who's been declaring this from ancient times? Hasn't it been me, the Lord? I have been declaring this from ancient times. Scripture tells us that God's word has been forever settled in heaven, meaning that God's word is just as eternal as God himself, that this word has no beginning and no end, and that it will always be there. And in that word is the salvation plan for mankind. He's talking about the, 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 the plan and the design of salvation. The gospel in one verse is John three sixteen, For God so loved, what, the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He says, have I not been saying this from ancient times? Has the same drum not been beaten by me over and over and over again through Moses, through the prophets, through David, through Isaiah, through all of these people? Has it not pointed to me being your Savior? You've tried all the rest, now come to me. There is uh, that he is the author of salvation, and it was his love that conceived that plan. It was his love that allowed Jesus, his only son, to go to the cross be sacrificed for our sin. So we see that he's the author of salvation, but we also see that there is no other God beside him. He says in verse 21, there is no other God beside me, a just God and a savior. There is no one, no one that is beside me. Now this is a bold and brash statement because it's not uh, in vogue to say that there's only one God to worship. We have to be tolerant of so many other ideas and isms and philosophies today because we don't want to offend anyone. That there's this melting pot of faith and religion. But when it comes to our salvation, the Bible is very clear. There is only one place we can go and that there is no other God. All other gods, all other idols and false objects where we place our real hopes will, will distract us and will, disappointment, will disappoint us eventually. You see, we have false gods, false idols, shaky ground, Money, 
Fame, power, relationships, sex, politics, all of those things are false idols that don't have firm footing themselves and we can't trust them. And what it's saying is we put our real hopes in false things. We're going to be disappointed somewhere down the road. And he says, only me, only I have been around forever saying the same thing, offering the same hope. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here's the most beautiful part. God wants anyone who will come to him to come to him. He wants to save and he is willing and ready to save anyone who will come to him. Look what he says. Look to me in verse 22 and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no one else. That look to me and be saved, what it's saying is it screams that God wants to save us. That he's not some petulant, crotchety God up in heaven that's just still ripped off about the tree and the fruit. He's not mad at you, and he's not holding a grudge against you for the sin in your life. He's not mad at you and looking to pour out and and just come down and and bang down with fists of justice and fury upon you. Even though he's perfectly righteous in doing that. What he wants to do is he wants to give us his grace, his love. That's why he says, draw near to me. That's why he says, I want to save you. He says, I will save you. Look to me. He says, look to me. Jesus, later on in the New Testament, he said, come to me, all that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. And Jesus could have been mad. God could have been mad. Like, man, you all are out there tired and wore out because you've been going against what I've been saying. How many parents we got in here today? Okay, all right. How many parents who are now grandparents? This ain't gonna apply to you. Because somewhere between parent and grandparent, you lost your ever-loved minds. All right? But parents, you remember, or go back in that day. Parents, you remember when you used to tell your kids something and they didn't listen and they went and did the exact opposite? How'd that make you feel? Maybe you're more righteous than me, but I'll tell you how it makes me feel. It makes me flaming mad. Right? I'm like, why? How many times do I have to keep saying the same thing for you just to ignore it in a million different ways? And so when my kids come to me and say, man, I don't know why this messed up. I was like, I'll tell you why it messed up, because you didn't do what dad said. God doesn't do that with us. He could and he should. But what is God saying here? He's like, look to me and be saved. And then he says, all the ends of the earth. What that is talking about is the fact that God's arms are out or stretched out, but they're also stretched wide. That no matter what you've done, no matter where you've done it, no matter who you've done it with, God says, come to me. Come to me. The Israelites at this point, the the nation of Israel at this point, had been gone from God for quite a while. They had been out there looking for other answers. They had been told by prophets, and Isaiah had been kind of beating this drum that one day a Messiah will come. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. We'll believe it when we see it. And Until then, we're going to go over here. And everything just collapsed around them, and God is saying now, come to me and be saved. Come to me and find salvation. That's how we see God's love is because when he could have and should have been saying this big cosmic, I told you so, and he said, you turned your back on me, I'm closing the door on you. He said, no, come on in. All who are weary, all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And then we look at this, this last one, that he is our only hope. He says, come to me. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Why? Because there is no one else. Look to me because there is no one else. And this is the wonderful beauty of God's grace, is that there's no shortage of distracting gods out there. 
There's no shortage of distracting gods. All those things that we talked about, maybe you got some other little G-gods in your life that you've been distracted by. But understand, God's grace is so sufficient. God's grace is so good that, there, that he will sometimes set up situations where everything else is gone and the only thing you can see is him. You ever heard that phrase of, man, I'm so, I'm so down, I got to drill up for oil, you know? Or maybe, you're, maybe you, I heard this one the other day. I thought it was awesome. You know, we, we, are, so, we are so down and out right now. We're, we're eating cereal with a fork just to save milk. <laughs> you know, you get to this place where you're just down. There's nowhere else to go but up. And guess who's there when you look up? God. Guess who's there when you said, man, I got this on my own. And God's just looking at you like, no, you don't. No, you don't. But you're like, oh, yeah, I do. Watch this. He's like, I'll watch. And then when everything is down and everything is just completely let you down and you look up because there's nowhere else to look, there he is. And he's saying, look, I told you, there is no one else around. It's me. You know what the beauty of that is? We don't deserve it. We don't deserve that God would say, you know what? When everybody else is gone, I'll still be there. Because in his righteousness, in his holiness, he should have been the first one out the door when we sinned. But in his grace and his mercy and his love, he's the last one there. And he's leaving the light on. And he's going to keep leaving the light on for you to find him until you receive. But we have this life to make that choice. We have this life to make that choice. And here's how he left the light on. He sent Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. There's no one else. Over in Isaiah chapter 43, just a couple of chapters back, Isaiah said the same thing, but like in a different way. And by the way, Isaiah's kind of a broken record when it comes to this exclusivity of God, exclusivity of God thing. That there is no Savior but God. It's kind of like Isaiah. That was like his message all the time. It's like, oh, great, Isaiah's preaching again. We kind of know what's, gonna ha- what's coming. We know what the points are. We know what the passage is. We know what's going to come. Isaiah said this in Isaiah chapter 43. He says, I, even I, the Lord, am God, and beside me there is no other. There is no other Savior. God is the only hope that we have for salvation today, and I know that in our modern culture that doesn't seem like it flies. It seems too close-minded, too far exclusive to declare that there is no God but God, and that he's the only way that our souls find rest and salvation, but that really doesn't have anything to do with our modernity has nothing to do with where we are in 2019 because this has been a problem ever since the beginning of sin. Ever since the tree and the fruit, man, way back then when they first sinned. You know why they sinned? They sinned because they just thought there was something better than God. The serpent tempted Eve and Adam to say that, hey, man, God is not going to kill you. He just knows that when you eat this fruit, you'll be just like him because it wasn't good enough to just trust God. I have to be able to have that power myself. And some of us, that's our problem in life. We think we've got it all under control. Like we're holding everything together. The world's not, or the, the universe is not spinning around the sun. It's not even spinning around earth. It's spinning around Derek Holmes. We get that idea. I'll tell you what, when that happens, we're in trouble. Because none of this is really about us, it's about him. And see, he's the only hope that we have. And so this is what Satan does. He tries to distract us thinking, don't look at God, because he knows that one good look at God, one good honest look at God, and the truth will set you free. 
But he says, no, over here, look at the fruit. Look at this. Look at this. God's really not what he says he is. And here's the thing. When Adam and Eve sinned in chapter 3 of Genesis, we get two chapters of God's plan before man messes it up. Isn't that awesome? In the whole Bible, you get two whole chapters of God's plan before, God, before we figure out a way to mess it up. That's how broken we are. But you know how long God stayed mad? You know how long God sat there and thought about whether he wanted to redeem us? Not even for one verse. Because the minute that Adam and Eve sinned and the minute the consequences begin to set in, in chapter, in chapter 3, verse number 15, right after the sin is committed, God goes to work weaving the plan of redemption. He says this. He says, I'm going to send someone who's going to bruise the head of Satan and he's going to provide life. Where you brought death through your sin, I'm going to provide life. I shouldn't. I don't have to. But I'm going to do that because of my grace and my love and my mercy. He didn't stay mad for a second. And that's the beauty of God, that he's the only one we can come to, and he is always willing for us to come. Not even for one verse did he get mad. Not even for one verse did he hold us out. He said, no, I'm presenting a way for you to come to me, and that way is Jesus Christ, and that's what I want to move as we close this morning. I want to move to John chapter 14 in the New Testament. We've been looking at the Old Testament before Jesus. Now let's look at the New Testament because all of this culminates in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. The plan that was announced in Genesis chapter 3, three chapters into the Bible, the moment after sin, the plan that was announced in the heart of God that was expressed in Isaiah 45 now culminates in Jesus Christ because he's the answer to what we question in life. He's the answer to the great question, how shall I be saved? He's the answer to that. And in John chapter 14, Jesus is getting ready to be crucified. He knows his time is drawing to an end. He's with his disciples, and he begins to tell them the plan of what's going on. And, and this is a, a passage in verse number 1 through 3 that is used a lot in funerals because Jesus begins to say that after I'm crucified, after I go to heaven, I'm getting ready to leave you. And when I go, what I'm going to be doing there is I'm going to be preparing this place for you. And that when I prepare this place for you, I'm going to come back again, and, and, and I'm going to get you. Those who believe in me, I'm going to come because here's the ultimate desire that God has. God desires for mankind to be with him. Right now, we're in kind of this weird state of we're with him, but we're not with him yet in everything that was intended. We're with him, but we're still living in the midst of all of this brokenness today. One day, God's going to make it all right. He's up there preparing mansions or dwelling places. Or I've heard people say, oh, it's probably just apartments. I don't care if it's a shack on the shore of the Crystal Sea. It's heaven. It's better than anything here. But God said, I'm going to prepare a place, and I'm going to come again, and I'm going to receive you. Now, Thomas, one of the guys who followed Jesus for three and a half years, he knew him better than most people on earth knew him. He still had questions. So take that and understand that you may be feeling guilty today because you say, man, I'm having trouble with my faith. I've got questions and I don't know the answers to that. Guess what? That's the walk of the Christian life. God can handle your questions. What we can't handle is when we don't come to him for the answers. So Thomas basically says, all right, Jesus, you're leaving and we're supposed to follow you. We're supposed to get to you, but how? We don't even know the way. We don't even know where you're going. So can you give us a map? Can you, drop us a, can you drop us a pin on Google Maps so that we can find you one day when all of this is ready? Still, again, Thomas is thinking, i got to get to God. But that's not salvation. Salvation is not about us getting to God. Salvation is that God came to us when we couldn't come to him. And so here's what Jesus said, the answer. 
In John chapter 14 and verse number 6, Jesus says, I am your way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. It's a mirror image of what God the Father was saying to Israel in Isaiah 45. I am the one. I am the only one. And this is the answer to the three greatest questions that mankind has about salvation. A lot of people, they want to ask the question, how can I be saved? This is a question that we see in Scripture throughout the history of mankind. Man wants to know, how can I be saved? How can I have eternal life? When Paul was a missionary, the jailer who uh, was there after the jail was disrupted, he looked at Paul and he says, how can I be saved? How, how do I have eternal life? Nicodemus came to Jesus and says, how can I have eternal life? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, how can I be saved? We must come to that point in our lives where we say, how can I be saved? The truth is, it's very rare that you'll talk to a person who, never, who says, I don't want anything to do with heaven. I don't want to go there. If they believe that there is a heaven and a hell, most everybody will say, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. Why? Because... If they truly believe in hell as the Bible has declared it, who would want to go there in their right mind? Who would want to? And so the answer to that question, no matter who asks, how can I be saved, no matter who asks that, the answer is always the same. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. I am the only road. I'm the only exit ramp that you can take out of this life of brokenness and sin. I am your one exit ramp to salvation. I'm it. You won't find it in anything else. You won't find it in other ideas, other philosophies, other, and you won't even find it in religion. You find it in Jesus. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way to be saved. Why? Because he's the only one who could pay the price for our sins. Because I can't overcome my sin debt by just being better next time. We don't pay our sin debt by just saying, oops, God, I'm sorry, I'll do better next time. And just hope that when we finally, when, when the clock of our lives runs out, that we were doing as good as we could and God's okay with that. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. That means we're not the way. That means your grandma or grandpa who begs you every day to come to church, your friend, your coworker, who's begging you every day to come, they're not the way. You coming to church every Sunday, that's not the way. Giving huge offerings, that's not the way. But try all you want to on that one, all right? I'm not, I'm just, that's not the way. Jesus, Jesus is the way. We cannot overcome the sin debt on our own by just doing better. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. And in Acts chapter 4, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other, because there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. The Bible does not sway, it does not stumble, and it does not stutter about this fact. That if you are looking for salvation, there's only one place you can look and find it. And that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Look to the cross. The second question many people ask is, how can I be sure? That's wonderful, preacher, you say that, but so far all you've done is show me a bunch of Bible verses. Obviously, the Bible is going to side with God because he wrote it. Right. Right. This is where faith comes in. This is what it says, for by grace are you saved through faith. What is faith? Faith, biblically speaking, is just taking God at his word. It's just saying, you know what, I can't prove it. 
I can't see it materialize in front of me yet. I've never talked to someone who's already been to heaven and can tell me that this is all exactly the way it's supposed to be. That's why it is by faith that we come to Jesus Christ to trust him. Faith is taking God at his word. And Jesus said this. He says, how can I be sure? How can you be sure? You can trust in Jesus because he is the truth. And he doesn't say he's just telling you the truth. He is the truth. That means that nothing about God is a lie. Nothing about Jesus is a lie. He can't tell a lie. And here's the thing. Anything that says that God is not true is a lie. Anything that opposes it. You may be sitting here thinking, well, that's all well and good. But let me tell you, man, God may not be a liar, but his people sure are. And you know what? Guilty is charged. We got to understand as a church, we may worship a perfect Savior, but we are not perfect ourselves. And we do much better in life, and we do much better to glorify Jesus, and we do much better to project his grace by, stop trying to, by stopping and trying to act like we are perfect. And stop trying to act like we are better than everyone else. Because I'm not better. I am better off. But it's only because of the grace of Christ. Only because of the grace of Christ. The third question that is always asked is, how can I be satisfied? All right, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the truth. But how can I be satisfied in this, man? Because all the Christians that I know are boring. All the Christians that I know have like lost their sense of humor. All the Christians that I know, maybe they're not just boring and have sense, they're just hateful. Or all the, you know, they're just, they're just joy killers and joy stealers. And a lot of people look at it this way. For me to become a Christian, for me to be saved, that means I gotta give up everything in life that I enjoy. No. Salvation is not about what you give up. Salvation is about who you receive. And in that receiving Jesus, all that other stuff begins to change because when you get saved, God makes you new. And your joy and your fulfillment and your satisfaction in life is now through Jesus, not through all of the other substitutes that are out there. Because remember what happened in Isaiah. They tried all the substitutes. Everything else fell and failed. Salvation is understanding that all of that other stuff may fulfill for a little while, but God fulfills for eternity. And in that, you find joy and you find peace. You find joy and you find peace and you find fulfillment and you find an energy and a vitality that you never had. And I'll say this. If you know Christians who are boring and sourpusses, I'm sorry, man. Get to know some cool people. They all go to church at Graceway Church. Every one of them. How can I be satisfied? I want to take you back to Kanye for a second as we close out. What did Kanye say? He said, I've tried everything else. I told you what fashion had done for me. I told you what Hennessy had done for me. I told you what sex had done for me. I told you what all that stuff has done for me. But now I'm telling you what Jesus has done for me. And only when I came to Jesus was I truly set free. How can I be satisfied? Jesus satisfies. Jesus sets you free. For the first time, Jesus makes you alive for the first time, the Bible says that before him, we are dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our sins. But he brings us to life. His death and his resurrection brings life to the dead in sin. The question this morning, is that you? Can you say like Kanye, in him, I'm no longer a slave. I am a child of the king. I am a child of God. 
can you, like Paul and Moses and all of the, all of the people from the Bible, can you say, in God, everything is different. My life is fulfilled. There is no life like the Christ life. So here are the words of the Father. He said, look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. I'm the only one. Here are the words of the Savior. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So the question this morning, the invitation this morning is, if you need salvation today, I've done my very best through God's word to tell you where you need to come. Come to the cross, come to Jesus. The Bible says this, that for us to be saved, for us to come to him, is very simple. We come to him through faith. That if you would trust in Jesus Christ, you could be saved. That if we will confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. The Bible tells us that for by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of our works. The only thing we must do to receive the gift of salvation is receive it by faith. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you feel like that brokenness. You feel like those, those people back in Isaiah where you've tried everything and it's done nothing but let you down. Just like God says, you've tried the rest. Now come to the only one who can satisfy. Say, but I don't know if I can give up everything. I don't know if I can be perfect. That's the beauty. You don't have to be. His perfection begins to work in you. And you grow in a daily relationship with him, a daily relationship of grace. But you must come to him for all of that to begin. You must put your faith and trust in him for that to happen. And I want to leave you with the invitation because I could try to give you a great invitation that I could come up with, but I just want to leave you with the invitation that Jesus gives. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, are worn out, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me because I am meek and gentle and lowly in heart and in that you will find rest in your soul. That's the invitation. Come to me.